All right, well, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 8 this morning, and despite what your bulletin says, we made a last-minute change. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 8, 1 through 13. We were going to look at the whole chapter, but we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 this morning uh, instead. Ecclesiastes 8, verses 1 through 13, as we see the preacher give us wisdom regarding God and government and how we ought to relate to governing authorities. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 8. Again, if you're a guest with us this morning, just let you know a little bit about our practice. So we generally uh, will take a book of the Bible and then just kind of slowly walk uh, through that particular book of the Bible uh, together during the sermon on, on Sunday mornings. We'll just kind of see what God has for us uh, in these books, in His Word uh, and, and we don't necessarily pick and choose what we're going to preach on. Uh, as we come to a passage, this is what's next, and this is what we're going to look at together. Uh, and there's a great benefit to being able to do so because we get to hear from God himself um, about himself and about us and about what he calls us to as his people. And so it's a great benefit to doing this. And this morning, um, after Super Tuesday in 2020, an election year, we are looking at Ecclesiastes 8 where God gives us wisdom regarding how we ought to relate to governing authorities. And so if you're in Ecclesiastes 8, if you got there, you can stand with me, and we're going to read from verses 1 through 13. Let's listen reverently and with joy, for this is the word of our God, and this is what he says. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can, who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear Christ this morning? And would you soften our hearts to receive his word, to receive his gifts, to receive his benefits? And we pray that your benefits through your word would go forth this morning, that you would grant us gifts of trust and repentance and sanctification and holiness. Would you grant us the gift of wisdom? Would you help us to live wisely in this world? 
to live ultimately in the fear of you and in light of the coming final judgment. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen. You can have a seat. Well, Edmund Clowney once wrote that wisdom is knowledge with the knower left in. Wisdom is knowledge with the knower left in. A basic idea being that that wisdom involves knowledge. It involves having a, a kind of intellectual grasp about the things of life and the way that they work. It involves having a, a firm grasp of ideas and principles and, and truth. But it involves more than that. It, it involves um, knowledge with the knower left in. Wisdom is, is not a, a head-in-the-clouds, intelligence-in-abstraction kind of knowledge. It's a knowledge that has its feet on the ground. It's a knowledge that knows how to navigate actual life in the actual world. It's knowledge with the knower left in. Uh, in, in other words, uh, a wise person can't just regurgitate a bunch of facts and advice listed on the CDC website about the coronavirus, a wise person washes their hands, right? You all need to wash your hands. As James 4.8 says, wash your hands, you sinners. That's not actually what James means, but still, you need to wash your hands in the name of Jesus. Wash your hands. But you get the point. Wisdom is, is knowledge with the knower left in. It's applied knowledge. It's lived knowledge. And it's an absolute necessity for us as followers of Jesus. Jesus told us this very same thing. He told his followers in in Matthew 10, 16, he said that he's sending his people out into the world as sheep among wolves. And therefore, he exhorted us to be wise, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, to be wise. We need to be wise as we sojourn through this present evil age. We need to exercise discretion and prudence and skill in our dealings in life. And the preacher goes as far to say here that when a wise person possesses wisdom, it's evident. It's evident. It's as clear as day, he says. He says in, in verse 1 here, it's, it, it like shines on their face. It's like you can see it on their face. A wis- a, the wisdom of a wise person is as evident as the stupidity of the foolish person. And one of the ways that the wisdom of the wise is evident is the way in which they navigate the difficulties of relating to human authorities. How do we relate to human authority? And of course, there are various you know, forms of authority in our lives. There are parents and pastors and bosses and teachers and, and doctors and all the rest. But here in, particularly, uh, in particular, the preacher addresses the way in which we relate to governing authorities. That's what we see from the preacher here this morning. He exhorts us to respect governing authorities, to recognize their limitations, and to revere God alone. He calls us to respect governing authorities, to recognize their limitations, and to revere God alone. Well, first we see here in verses 2 to 7, the preacher calls us to have respect. He would have us respect. Wisdom would have us respect governing authorities. Again, such as the practical and functional nature of of wisdom. It helps us navigate real life in the real world. And one of the more complex and difficult matters of real life in the real world is to how to navigate and approach 
governing authorities. And so the preacher calls us, he says in, in verse 2, to respect governing authorities, he says, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. So you see first here, he exhorts us to obey governing authorities, to obey their command. And the first reason he gives for us to respect and obey governing authorities is because of God's oath, God's promise to them. Now, that may seem somewhat strange to us at first glance. What, what oath is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the idea that we find in Scripture that, that God is the one who has created and ordained the institution of government for the sake of preserving and protecting life in the earth. It's an idea that goes as far back as God's covenant with Noah in Genesis. And this is why the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, he exhorted them to do this very same thing uh, that the preacher is exhorting us to do here. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So you see here that government is God's idea. It's God's institution. He is the one who formed it and ordained it for the purpose of restraining evil in the creation and for the purpose of preserving and protecting humanity from descending into death and chaos. Because government has been instituted by God, we ought to obey and submit to governing authorities. Paul even calls them God's servants. Literally, he calls them God's ministers for our good. And then the preacher not only exhorts us to obey governing authorities because of God's oath, but because of the very practical dangers involved with disregarding and disobeying governing authorities. He says, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? As you see here, the, the preacher says that governing authorities are your authority. And if you disregard and disobey authority, you're putting yourself in a dangerous position. And of course, the preacher, he lived in a, in a time and a place where monarchical forms of government abounded, right? And kings and, and, and such forms of government were invested with this, this unquestioned authority in their kingdoms. They literally did pretty much whatever they wanted. And if you disregard the word of the king in such a kingdom, you, you're liable to lose your head. You likely will. Of course, we don't live in a, a place, in a time, wherein our governing authorities possess absolute, unquestioned authority. So disrespecting them, saying disrespectful things about them on social media, as 
Americans are so apt to do. Being less than polite to a police officer might not be a death sentence, although it could be, particularly if you're, you're poor or a minority. But still, re- recognize the, the danger of taking a, a disposition, an attitude of disrespect toward authority, such as politicians or police officers or the like. They've been entrusted with authority over us. They can make your life more difficult if they want to. So take a disposition, an attitude of respect and deference toward them, he says. Be wise in your dealings with them. And now, this is, this is particularly hard for us as Americans sometimes, isn't it? Uh, I mean, our, our nation was literally birthed in rebellion against the British government. And whether or not that was justified, that's not what I'm debating here, whether or not it was justified, it doesn't change this, that the kind of dis- that kind of disposition and attitude toward governing authorities in the beginning has significantly shaped and formed us as a nation, right? It's been significant in shaping our, our kind of continued disposition and attitude toward that of government. And because of that, I pretty much have to address this question. Uh, I, I know that the majority of us in this room right now, we're, we're like, just we have this burning question in our guts. When can we disobey them? When can we disrespect them? We, we just want to know, when can we disobey governing authorities? When is it biblically permissible for us to disregard and disobey governing authorities? And I don't want to pretend that that's an unimportant question. It's a very important question. Um, from the beginning of the church, uh, it, Christianity has, has been fairly consistently uh, speaking truth to power and has at times been required to exercise a measure of civil disobedience against governing authorities. Our situation in, in Western culture as a whole has not been the norm throughout history or throughout the globe even today. Um, Christians early on in, in Christian history in, in, in the Roman Empire in the first century, uh, for example, were continually commanded by Roman soldiers to bow down and worship Caesar as a god. They were told to offer a pinch of incense to him and confess that Caesar is Lord once every year. They were required to do so by the Roman Empire. And our brothers and sisters in that century, faithful to Christ and his kingdom, they refused to worship Caesar. They refused to make that confession. They refused to make the pinch of incense. And therefore, they necessarily exercised civil disobedience, sometimes leading to their own imprisonment and sometimes even to their own deaths. These are indeed, there are indeed times where it is appropriate and called for to be civilly disobedient. But how do we know when, when civil disobedience is appropriate and called for? We ought to disobey governing authorities whenever they command us to do something that God forbids or when they seek to prohibit us from doing something that God commands. Okay, so we ought to disobey governing authorities whenever they command us to do something that God forbids or seek to prohibit us from doing something God commands. The, the book of Daniel it's a really good example of this. Okay, so consider the way that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they interact with the kings and the governing authorities throughout the book of Daniel. Throughout the book, they show a great deal of respect and deference to the king, to the kings and to the governing authorities. Even though they're pagans, even though the king, he's a pagan, he's a wicked, evil king, still... They serve at his pleasure. They help him interpret dreams. They give him wise counsel. They, they serve at his pleasure. They honor and respect his authority as king. And yet, in Daniel 3, what does King Nebuchadnezzar do? 
he builds this huge golden statue. And uh, it's a statue of himself. And he commands everyone in the kingdom to bow down and worship this statue. And you know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to do so. Why do they refuse to do so? Well, because God commanded his people in the second of the Ten Commandments to not bow down and worship idols. They were commanded by the king to do something that God forbids. And so they said, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to obey God rather than you. And likewise, later in the book of Daniel, Daniel 6, Daniel's now serving at the pleasure of King Darius. And some other officials get jealous of Daniel. They conspire against him. They have King Darius make a decree that anyone who prays to a god or a man other than Darius for 30 days will be thrown into a lion's den. And again, you know the story. This was a measure taken to lay claim to Darius's absolute authority, claiming to be divine and above all. So what does Daniel do? He goes home and he prays to the one true God. And he doesn't just do it once. He does it three times every day. The king sought to prohibit what God commanded Daniel to do, namely to pray to him and him alone as God, as the one true God. And so Daniel exercised civil disobedience. And we ought to do the same should the need ever arise. We ought to disobey governing authorities or any authority, be it parents or, or pastors or, or anyone. We ought to disobey any human authority that tells us to disobey God's word, who tells us to, to do what God forbids or to prohibit us from what God commands. The need to do so may never come up for us in, in relating to, to governing authorities, but still it could. We ought to always be resolved to obey God rather than man. God is our highest authority. God is higher than any other authority. God is higher than the authority of government or parents or, or church officers or whomever. They call us to disobey God. We obey God rather than men. Now, please recognize, though, that ordinarily, in the ordinary scheme of things, we're called to obey governing authorities. It's a deviation and a departure from what we're ordinarily called to do. We're ordinarily called to respect and obey governing authorities, whether they be Democrats or Republicans, whether they be someone we agree with or not, Wisdom calls us to respect them and obey. However, wisdom would not only have us respect governing authorities, wisdom would also have us recognize their limitations. Okay, kind of along the same lines that we've been thinking here and exploring about. Governing authorities, while they are good, they are not God. While they have been ordained and instituted by God, they have their limitations regarding what they're able to do and, and, and accomplish in this world. So we ought to recognize these limitations. And the preacher exhorts us to do just that as he writes here in verse 8. He says, No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. First, he calls us to recognize the limitations of governing authorities by reminding us that they don't actually have any power over death. No matter how much power and authority a politician, a king, a queen may possess, they're still just a human being. From dust they came, and to dust they will return. That's something every king and queen, every pharaoh and desperate, every president and congressman and woman and, and senator, every governor, every mayor, every police officer, whoever it may be, every governing authority 
is going to one day kick the bucket and breathe their last. They have no power over the day of death. And that reminds me of, of this, this poem, actually, that Roy Lowry uh, shared with me when we first began the series in, in Ecclesiastes. The, the poem is called Ozymandias, and it's about this 13th century B.C. pharaoh in Egypt. Um, now, the poem wasn't written in 13th century B.C. Uh, it was written in the early 1800s A.D., uh, and, and what kind of inspired the poem was that these archaeologists had discovered um, the remains of the statue of Ozymandias. The statue, at one point in time, must have been absolutely extraordinary, huge and, and glorious looking, just beautiful. But by the time they, they discovered it, obviously, it, it had been basically reduced to dust, much the same as Ozymandias. All that was left was uh, a pair of legs and some words at the base of the statue, and and upon discovering this, uh, Percy Beesh, Beesh, Shelley, I think that's Beesh, Shelley wrote this poem. Says, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown. And wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell it that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. On the pedestal, these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sand stretch far away. Now don't you see that this is, this is the fate of every king, every politician, every governing authority, except one king, of course. They're all going to give up the ghost, and history will carry on without them. Trump, Bernie, Biden, Bushes, Clintons, Kennedys, you name it. They will all die. And their accomplishments and their legacies will eventually be forgotten and covered by the sands of history along with them. Don't put your faith and trust in them. Recognize their limitations. And then not only does the preacher call us to recognize their limitations in light of death, but also in light of the reality that they will actually make mistakes and make foolish and sinful decisions while they're in office. He says that there's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. In other words, kings and politicians and governing authorities will sometimes be forced to lead their people into war and their armies into battle simply because of matters that are outside of their control. There's no discharge from war. Not only that, but wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it, meaning that governing authorities will sometimes even lead their nations into the horrors of war because of their wickedness, simply because they're given to war and violence and idolatry. Not only that, the preacher says, he says, consider the kind of faulty judgments that governing authorities often exercise in their judicial positions. He says, starting in verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. You see, he's, he's saying that sometimes governing authorities, those who have been instituted and ordained by God to carry out justice, to preserve and protect human life, often they fail to do the exact thing that they've been ordained to do. 
We've all heard stories in the United States where an innocent person in a court of law is condemned as guilty, they're sentenced to prison, and then later discovered to have been innocent all along. And, and perhaps at times, this is simply done out of genuine ignorance. Human judges and juries, they're not omniscient. Sometimes they simply do the best they can with what's given them and they make mistakes. Other times, the innocent are condemned and the wicked go unpunished, not because of ignorance, but because of corruption, because of racism, because of classism, because of wickedness on part, on the part of those in the place of judge. Human authorities, human judges, human politicians and kings and courts, they're not perfect. They are extremely limited in what they can accomplish and provide. And so the preacher says, recognize their limitations. And again, this might be a particular point of application we want to just pause on for a moment. We need to hear now in the West in 2020, we have another presidential election coming up. Things are bound to get heated again. And part of what has led to issues of government and politics becoming so heated and so contentious in recent years is just the simple fact that that for many of us, politics has become a sort of new religion. Interestingly, Leslie Newbegin, a, a British missionary and theologian, died in the 1970s. He actually discerned that this might happen in the West. As he saw the tides of secularism coming in and, and this common disregard for religion and the transcendent and the supernatural and the arrival of the Enlightenment, he actually thought that this would lead to a kind of vacuum in our lives, and we would lose a sense of greater purpose, a sense of transcendence and belonging to something bigger than ourselves. And he thought that what would kind of take that place is, is politics. And this politics would become a new kind of religion for us as Western people. And I think we're seeing this, aren't we? On both conservative and progressive sides of the spectrum, many are putting all their eggs in this basket. If we can just get the right person... In the White House, they'll finally lead us to be this utopian society. They'll bring the, the fullness of human flourishing. They'll lead us into the eschaton. You see it on both sides. And when we think that what's at stake here in these elections is, is perfect justice and human flourishing, when it becomes our religion, no wonder we get so contentious and volatile with those that disagree with us. No wonder, because we think our salvation and our freedom is at stake here. We're not recognizing the limitations of these, these authorities. They cannot give us what only the full arrival of the kingdom of God will finally and ultimately give us. They cannot give us a new heaven and a new earth. They cannot give us full and final justice and human flourishing because they themselves will die. They themselves are fallen. They themselves are limited, fallen, sinful, broken human beings. Now, please don't think that just because you're a Christian that you're immune to this. You're not. I'm convinced that this is one of the easiest and most dangerous ways that we Western Christians can practice syncretism in our lives. You may read as you read material about Christians throughout the world. You, you may read that Haitian Christians some Haitian Christians sometimes drift into mixing voodoo and Christianity. You may read that sometimes Christians in Africa may 
sometimes drift into mixing animism in Christianity. But we Western Christians are often so blind to the fact that we so often mix our Christianity with the religion of politics. So often put our hope in the empty promises of politicians and presidential campaigns only to meet with a kind of anxiety and disappointment and to compromise our witness in the process. See, in this cultural moment, one wherein there is increased anxiety and hostility and polarization in the public sphere due to this political climate, we of all people ought to be a non-anxious, peaceful presence. Because we know that whatever happens, our sovereign God is governing and guiding the times and seasons of our lives and is therefore working all things out for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about what goes on in the public sphere. That we shouldn't, I'm not saying that who who Americans vote into the White House isn't important, into the Senate, into the Congress, into the State House, all the rest of it. I'm not saying that that's unimportant. It is important. As Christians, we ought to be interested in the common good of our nation, the nation in which we live. We ought to care about policies and the character of those in office. We ought to care about it in proportion to its importance. And while it's important, it's not of ultimate importance. What is of ultimate importance is the kingdom of God. What is of ultimate importance is the gospel of Jesus Christ going forth and bearing fruit in the earth. What is of ultimate importance is the glory of God being known and enjoyed in the earth. That is what is of ultimate importance. And so we would do well to ask ourselves whether or not we're rightly recognizing the limitations of governing authorities. And not only that, but next and last, next in verses 12 to 13, we see that wisdom would have us fear God. We respect governing authorities, but we also recognize their limitations, and we revere God by living in light of the final judgment. The preacher says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. The preacher tells us that while earthly kingdoms and courts and their limitations will fail to bring perfect justice in the here and now, the throne of heaven will ultimately bring perfect justice in the final judgment. He says that though a sinner, a wicked person, a criminal may get away with their crimes in the here and now, in the hereafter there will be justice. God is the ultimate and final authority. He is the highest and holy king. He is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And his government and his kingdom will one day come in full. And when that day comes, it will go well with those who fear God, but it will not go well for the wicked. Therefore, while while justice in the here and now often fails and is often delayed, the wise don't ultimately live for the here and now. The wise live in light of the hereafter. The wise live in light of the coming judgment. For as the the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, he says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. As Johnny Cash so compellingly remind us in his song, he released shortly before his death, he said, you can run on for a long time, can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. 
Go tell that long-tongued liar. Go tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell them that God's going to cut them down. Of course, on this side, the coming of Jesus, we have a greater assurance that this promise will come and is true. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 17.31, he says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed. It's Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, God has not forgotten his promise that he will set this world straight one day and that he will one day right every wrong. There's coming a day wherein injustice will no longer be permitted to go on. The injustice of criminals and wicked governments and the like have an expiration date. There's a day coming where in Revelation 11.5 says the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And on that day, Jesus tells us in John 5, 28, it's a day wherein all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And because of this, because of the final judgment, we should fear God alone. And remember what fearing God means. To fear God doesn't mean to be scared of him, be frightened of him. It means to have a a healthy reverence and awe for his holiness, his righteousness, his power. It means to consider him above and before everything else in life. It means to have him in the proper place in your life. For the one who fears God, God fills his vision. He's not, God is not a philosophical concept. He's the weightiest and most important reality of their lives. He is central. He's the focal point. As they look at everything else in their lives, they look at everything else in their lives. In light of the holiness and sovereignty of God, they look at their finances and their, their marriage, their children, their, their time, their vocations, their politics. All of it is brought into submission to him and to his will. That's what it means to fear God. He and he alone is given first and greatest priority. So I would ask you this morning, is the triune God the first and greatest priority in your life? Are you living in accordance with what is temporally important or what is eternally important? Is the greatest priority in your life your, your family as good as your family is? It shouldn't be your family. Is it your, your finances? Is it your vocation? Or, or, or perhaps in continuity with this theme of, of recognizing the limitations of, of governing authorities, we ought to consider your politics. Are your politics given proper place, an appropriate place in your life? Have you fallen into this trap, Christian, of practicing politics as religion? Have you not recognized their limitations? Some ways you might be able to tell that that you're failing to fear God and, and, and recognize the, the limitations of governing authorities. Just a few questions, just a few items to, to ask yourself. First is, is, what tends to fill up your, your conversations and dominate your conversations with friends and family and acquaintances? Is it the one true God? Is it the things of God? Is it the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or is it something else entirely? Is, is it politics and politicians? 
If every time you get together with friends and family, pretty much what always dominates your conversation is politics, then you might have mixed up priorities here. If you typically talk with your non-believing friends about politics rather than Christ and his gospel, you might have mixed up priorities here. If the bulk of your posts and discussions on social media actually have to do with politics and government and politicians, you might have mixed up priorities here. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if what is continually coming out of your mouth is politics, 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 instead of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the things of God, then your religion might be your politics, not Christ in his kingdom. Likewise, you need to consider, perhaps you're not revering God alone and you're not recognizing the, the limitations of governing authorities if you can't be respectful toward others with differing politics, if you tend to find people on the other side of the political spectrum to be consistently distasteful and despicable and dumb and not worthy of your respect, if you can't have a respectful and civil conversation with them, if you can't listen to them and be kind and gentle and generous toward them, then maybe you are more shaped by this current current political climate than by the kingdom of God, and you're not rightly recognizing the limitations of governing authorities and revering God alone. Lastly, if you agree with everything a particular political party or political figure says or does, you might be practicing politics as your religion. Is there a particular presidential candidate with whom you never disagree? Is there a political party with which you never find yourself at odds with due to Christian convictions? Are your preferred parties and politicians inerrant, never wrong in your sight, instead of fallen human beings who are capable and prone to sin and make mistakes? If so, you you might not be rightly recognizing the limitations of governing authorities. You might not be revering God alone. Safe to say that perhaps he does not have first and highest priority in your life. And on that last day, in the final judgment, when these governments are subsumed by the kingdom and government of our God and his Christ, to have anything else but God and Christ at the center of your life will prove to be very foolish indeed. Wisdom would have us revere God alone. And of course, part of the problem with all of us a sinful humanity. The problem with all of us, a sinful humanity, is that none of us have feared God in the way that we ought. We reflected on this last week, didn't we? We even looked at Romans 3, 10 through 18, where Paul says that no one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There's no fear of God before their eyes, he says. And so when that day of judgment comes, we all actually deserve to be condemned to eternity in the lake of fire. Because we put our hopes in false gods. We all deserve to be sent into the resurrection of judgment. We all deserve to be cut down by God. Thanks be to God. God has sent his very own son to live the life that you and I should have lived. He lived in the fear of God. He he respected all legitimate authority. 
He submitted to God's will in all things in thought, word, and deed. And yet, as the perfect human being, he also died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin, and he did so in our place. He did so so that you and I would be forgiven for our irreverence toward God, our lack of respect for legitimate authorities that he's placed over us, for our idolatry of politics and government so that we would be forgiven and cleansed of our sins. And he did so that we might be saved into the fear of God. And that's not all. On the third day, he rose again and he ascended into heaven 40 days later to be seated above all earthly rulers and authorities. And indeed, while our earthly rulers are wrought with limitations and brokenness and sins, while they will all die and their kingdoms will pass away, his will never pass away, as Isaiah 9 tells us. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so one day he will return and his peace will cover the earth. He will bring about perfect justice. He will bring about the peace, the shalom, the human flourishing for which we so long for and desire and for which we, we so l- foolishly look for in these earthly governing authorities. He will bring it and there will be no end to it. But to participate in his kingdom and to be there under his rule and reign, you must fear him. You must revere him. You must submit to him. You must swear your ultimate allegiance to him and to him alone. And if you do, full and free forgiveness is yours because of his cross. And we can say it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. And so we respect governing authorities. We recognize their limitations, but we revere God alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, seal this word upon our hearts. As we come to the table, remind us of what Christ has done for us in dying in our place and rising on the third day. And because he's alive, May this meal also be to us communion with him and with his presence by the Holy Spirit. And remind us as we come to this meal as well that he's going to return one day and we're going to enjoy this meal with him in his physical presence. And we will worship him as the one true king, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. We pray these things in his name. Amen.